teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Game of Thrones, The Rise of David. In this series, we look at how God removed Saul from the throne and took David, a simple shepherd boy, and made him the king of Israel. Uh, we had a, a technical glitch um, with our podcast. We had asked Apple to remove one episode and they removed the entire podcast. So if you are someone who subscribes to our podcast, you're going to have to resubscribe to our podcast. We just got it approved last night. It was on the church's Facebook page. You can also hit the church website and do it that way. It'll be coming out in the bridge this week. We'll get it 12 different ways to you. So you can, you can hit and resubscribe to the podcast. So if you want the teachings automatically downloaded to your computer or, or uh, phone, you can do that. But you'll have to resubscribe because the old one's going to be going away. There was just a glitch. We had a problem with it. So uh, thanks for being patient with that. With that, we're going to be uh, turning today, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19. We're going to be looking at David in his time in the hall of the mad king. And uh, I'm going to just read, obviously chapter 18 and 19 would be a very long section to read. So I'm just going to read 1 Samuel 18 verses 6 to 16 because it kind of summarizes what's going on in this section uh, of the scripture. And so, as always, you can follow along up on the screens, but I really do encourage you to bring a Bible, have one open on your phone or, or iPad or uh, an old-fashioned paper Bible, whichever way you want to do it, but you're gonna, it's going to be helpful because we're going to be covering chapters at a time, so it'll help to follow along. 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning at verse 6, hear now the word of the sovereign God. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? From that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And uh, on February the 7th, 1970, a man named Dr. John Perkins, who was the leader of the Voice of Calvary Ministries down in Mississippi, had led a civil rights march. It was mainly composed of students. And after the march, two vans of the students were going home, and they were stopped by a sheriff and some deputies, but they arrested only one group of people in the one van. They let the other van go. And then the students called Dr. Perkins. And on the way there, he was going with two other pastors. He thought, this might be a trap. Why did they let the one van go? And sure enough, when he came there uh, to give bail, 
he and the two other pastors were brutally beaten by 12 highway patrolmen who were lying in wait for them because they had been leading this civil rights march. They were then taken into the jail where the sheriff, five of his deputies, and the 12 patrolmen continued to beat them. The sheriff got in uh, Dr. Perkins' face and said, you're not in Simpson County now, you're in Brandon. And in Brandon, this is what we do to those who do civil rights. He was beaten, he was stabbed with a fork, and he was stomped until everyone around him thought he was dead. And he laid there, and as he was laying there looking at the men who had just stabbed him with the fork and beat him and stomped him, he said he came to a realization. Their own racism was destroying them. And rather than hating them, he came out of it and said, I realized I had a new call. I had thought my call was to preach the gospel to African Americans. But I realized I had a call to preach the gospel to the very white men who were beating me and trying to kill me. Because the gospel overcomes that kind of hatred. And he realized in that moment that what they were doing to stop the work of God would only further the work of God. And he came out again with a fresh call. Now I bring this story up because it's got so many parallels to this time in the life of David, where David now coming fresh off the great victory, and it seemed like things would have changed. And one would have thought, I mean, you may be surprised by me giving that date, 1970. We kind of thought, you know, Martin Luther King was already done. I mean, we thought civil rights certainly are here, but no, they're not. There are still those who will fight against it at every move. Sad to say, it's also parallel because David's persecution at this point is not going to come from the Philistines. It's going to come from Saul and other Israelites. And sad to say, many of the people that were engaged in trying to stamp out Martin Luther King or Dr. Perkins were also teaching Sunday school in the church. Sad to say. They were religious on one side, but actually fighting against God's work at the same moment. So we're going to look at this, this incident, this time in David's life where David, fresh off the victory over Goliath, is now going to spend time in the hall of a mad king. Now, what do we learn in this text? Well, the first thing we learn is that David is under the favor of God. And this is central in this text. Notice in verse 12, we read, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. We'd seen the same thing all the way back in chapter 16. Remember when the Spirit came upon David, the very next thing we read is that the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. We're still two chapters later, and we're still seeing this juxtaposition. God is with David. And this explains everything else in the, in the section that we're going to look at. It explains David's great success. David does not succeed because he's great and mighty because of something inside of him. He succeeds because the Holy Spirit is upon him, and he has been anointed and called by God to do this work. It also explains Saul's jealousy and fear. Saul is not jealous and afraid simply because that's Saul's nature. He's jealous and afraid precisely because David is under the favor of God and because David is being blessed by God. David is God's anointed. David is under God's favor. 
And so notice, this is the, the first point that I just mentioned is that David is blessed with great success. In verses 12 to 16, where we just read, we read that the Lord was with David, and he had left Saul there in verse 12. In verse 14, we read, in everything David did, he had great success, and note why, because the Lord was with him. It's not just that David had, was, you know, had gone to school and was a superior soldier because of that. David had done no military training. Remember that had come up when we looked at the, the thing with Goliath. And Saul said, this guy's been fighting since he was a kid. You've never fought before. David's training was only as a shepherd, but it does not matter for God is with him. And so David is finding success. In verse 15, Saul, even though he fears David, is afraid, he can't deny how successful David is. Everything he gives David to do, which we're going to see in a minute, they're all just traps. Every one of them are a way that he's hoping David is going to fail, but time after time after time, to Saul's great disappointment and further fear and further jealousy, David just succeeds more and more and more. And then in verse 16, we get the final summary that all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Now, they wouldn't have loved him if he led them in their campaigns and they were losing. But they love him because he's leading in the campaigns and he's winning. And every time he's given control of more troops, he does even better. So the basis of all of this is the Lord is with David and therefore he's successful in everything he does. The people who love him see that and even the man who can't stand him, Saul, sees and cannot deny that David is successful. But all of this isn't about David's success. It's all an outward sign of God's supernatural blessing on David. God is with David. You have to grasp that to understand everything else that's going on here. He is with David, and he is with David in a supernatural way. Now, this even goes on to mean that even the other members of Saul's family love David. Okay, the, the writer is wanting us to understand what's going on here. All of Israel loves him. Saul can't stand him. But Saul looks around his own family, and they love David. In verses 1, 3, and 4, we read about Jonathan's love. And we're not going to take a lot of time on this because we're going to come back and look at Jonathan and David specifically next week. But there in verse 1, we read, as soon as David had finished talking with Saul, this is right after he had killed Goliath, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as he loved himself. So Jonathan, the heir, the one that Saul's trying, the, the, Saul is jealous for David because of Jonathan. He later tells Jonathan, don't you realize if this guy lives, you lose the kingdom. But Jonathan's response is, I don't care. I love David as much as I love myself. Then notice in verse three and four, Jonathan makes a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Saul wants David dead. Jonathan is making a covenant with David saying, I'm gonna do everything I can to support you because I realize you are God's anointed. And then in verse four, he says, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan takes off his royal clothes, gives them to David. He takes off his royal armor and his royal weapons and he gives them to David. This is a picture of what was supposed to happen. Jonathan is saying, I'm the heir. I'm the one everyone thinks is gonna sit on the throne. I'm taking off every sign of royalty I have. It's yours because you are are God's anointed. In all likelihood, 
I hadn't thought about this until I was meditating on it this week and studying, and one of the commentators mentioned, and I think they're right. He said, where was Jonathan in chapter 17 with Goliath? Jonathan is not a guy who'd have been back in the back hiding with everybody else. We've already seen in earlier chapters, Jonathan's a guy who wants to fight. He would have been out there. Why is Jonathan not standing up? He's never mentioned in chapter 17. Because Jonathan's heard the prophecy that God's got another anointed coming. And Jonathan is waiting for him to come forth. And when David strides out in the power of the Spirit and slays Goliath, Jonathan says, there's the man. That's the man. That's the king. And it does not matter if it cost me the crown. That's the Lord's anointed. I will do whatever I can to support that man. And Saul just loves that. Right? I mean, Saul's so happy with his son over this. Now, if that's not bad enough, then we read in verse 20, Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David. Now, we're going to see how Saul responds to this in such a fatherly fashion in a minute. But get the picture. Everywhere Saul turns, he wants David to die, but everywhere he turns, people love David. And they love David because God's favor is on David. And Saul recognizes it because that favor had been upon him, but he had forsaken it by disobedience because he cared more about his way and what he thought the culture needed rather than what God was telling him to do. And he thought he could sacrifice and do some religious things to get his way out of it when God said obedience is better than sacrifice. And so Saul is having to watch this, all of this being a sign of God's favor. David is successful, the Spirit is on him, the Lord is with him, and even Saul's own family loves David. So the text is telling us over and over and over again, God's favor is on David. So that means all of life will be sweet and wonderful for David, right? I mean, God's with him. It's, this is his best life now, right? David obviously didn't read our Christian bestsellers. Because the next thing we have to understand is David, the anointed, the man under God's favor, is also under the murderous wrath of Saul, the mad king. And remember, why is David in the palace? Who orchestrated it so that he would be there? Remember, Saul's having problems and sends out, and they just happen to find, in all of Judah, they find this young guy named David. God has orchestrated it so that the old king and the new king are there in the palace together. Yahweh has orchestrated this. Remember back when we first looked in chapter 16, all the things that God appointed, God saw, that, ver that Hebrew verb where God chose David, and God has chosen to bring David and Saul together. And so to do that, however, it puts David under the murderous wrath of Saul, this mad king. Now notice, Saul is jealous of David's blessing and his success. In our text, in verse 6, the the men are returning after David has killed the Philistine. He's killed Goliath. And they're coming back, and the women come out, and they meet them, and they sing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And what's Saul's response to that song? He, he's angry. He's galled by this. He, he can't believe they're doing it. But see, here's what I can't believe. Saul, what thousands did you slay? I was there. Goliath came out, and you were with the servant girls in the back. You were hiding behind mama's skirts. You weren't out there doing anything. Who did everything to bring Israel victory? 
David did it under the power of Yahweh. The song ought to have been, David slain the giant, accomplished the entire victory, Saul hid like a little girl in the back with everyone else. That would have been a true song. So actually the song is giving Saul way more credit than Saul's due. But when we have our hearts filled with jealousy, and our own reputation is on the line, we don't think that way. Saul says, I'm the king. Nobody should get credit like I get credit, even if we would still be sitting out there if it weren't for God bringing David. But Saul can't stand this. He hates this refrain. And so his response in verse 8, we read that he is angry. And in verse 9, he keeps a jealous eye on David. Now remember, Saul's done nothing to bring about this victory. Nothing whatsoever. But Saul is now jealous and angry. And in fact, what we're learning in this text is Saul would rather destroy the one who saved him than share his glory or admit his own need. Now here's a question. Are you and I any different? Look at humanity. Christ has come, has fought and slain the giant for us, and what's the average person's response? I will not admit my need. I will not share my glory. I would rather him be dead than admit my need for a savior. Friend, it it is no different, and it is no different even among believers. I wanna tell you, even as believers, we can, when, when it comes time to admit my need, when it comes time to confess and repent of my sin, anything but that, oh God even if it means destroying the very thing that would bring me salvation. And so we see Saul doing this. And then, beginning down in verse 8, we read again that he is angry. In verse 9, he is jealous. In verse 12, he is afraid. And in verse 15, he is afraid. So the words that are characterizing Saul at this point is jealousy, anger, and fear. This is what's brewing in Saul's heart. I believe the root of them is jealousy, and jealousy is a disease that knows no bounds. It eats away joy and reason, and it produces anger, fear, envy, and hatred. What should Saul have been doing in response to David? Rejoicing. They sat there. The Philistines, Saul could not conquer. He was in trouble. He had no answer for Goliath. And God plucks a shepherd boy up out of nowhere, delivers Israel, everyone is saved, and people are singing songs of joy to Saul in the street, but his response is jealousy, envy, fear, hatred, anger. Because that's what jealousy does in our heart. When jealousy grips a hold of someone, it it knows no bounds. And I want you to notice, there's no reason behind what Saul's doing here. It's completely unreasonable. You might notice things like this if you like pick up the newspaper today. You, You might see areas where our culture has lost all reason. But I want to tell you, when sin starts eating away at the heart, don't expect people to be reasonable. They will not be reasonable. We will do anything and everything once it's gripped our heart. Go back to the garden. Eve, 
if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Reason would say, I already am. I'm his likeness. I'm as like him as a creature could possibly be. I have everything. But when sin grips the heart, reason shuts down. And so suddenly it makes sense to pluck the fruit, the one thing God has withheld, and eat it. And I somehow believe I'm going to be elevated by this act, when in fact it's destruction for me and all of my posterity. And it's exactly what's going on in Saul's heart. The very one that he ought to be seeing as the anointed of God, that he ought to be rejoicing and celebrating, he is now filled with jealousy and wrath and rage and hatred towards that one. And so we then see, because jealousy has grabbed Saul's heart, there is a descent into murderous madness. First, Saul tries to kill David himself. In verses 10 and 11, we read, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did, and Saul had his spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So Saul's jealousy has now opened him to the, the power and presence of a demonic spirit or a, an evil spirit that has been sent by Yahweh, actually. It's still under God's control. But Saul has opened himself up to this evil spirit's influence. But I want you to notice, what is Saul doing while this is working in his heart? What does the text tell us he's doing? Is he out leading a rally against Yahweh? He's, he's saying, I'm an atheist. What's Saul doing? Prophesying. He's leading the church in worship or standing up preaching, whatever analogy you want to use. Saul is in the midst of religious worship. He is prophesying as David is playing the music, and in the middle of that, evil is eating away at his heart. And all he can do is he can sit there. And why is David playing music? Because that's the only release Saul has from the evil spirit. But, but jealousy eats away reason. And so reason is gone. And what I'm going to do is I can't take this. And I'm going to grab my spear and I'm going to hurl it through the very guy who at this very moment is giving me the only relief I have from the evil spirit. I mean, how dumb can you get? But it doesn't matter. Saul grabs the spear and he hurls it at David, not once, but twice he does this. And David keeps coming back and serving. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So notice this. Despite his outward worship, his outward piety, Saul's jealous heart is filled with murderous wrath against God's anointed. This is where I keep coming back. What this is, is the Game of Thrones. Because Saul's sitting there and he's worshiping and he's saying, oh Yahweh, you are sovereign, I worship you. And then he hears the voice, David's going to get the throne. If you let Yahweh have his way, your family loses the throne. And he looks and he sees Jonathan. He says, if I don't stop this, oh Yahweh, I worship you. If I don't stop this, Jonathan's going to do it. Yahweh, you're on the throne, I have to do something. And he grabs the spear and he hurls it. Man, is that a challenge for us? Is it possible to mouth words of worship? Is it possible to stand here and preach God's word while my heart is far away? 
look, this is not the Philistines. David's going to have to deal with that later. This is Saul, the king. But his heart is given way to sin. And when it gives way to sin, we're going to come back and see this, sadly, in David's own life when we get to 2 Samuel 11 and the Bathsheba incident. And oh, how far the man after God's own heart will descend because of sin. Now, Saul can't kill David. He tries twice. So then he hopes the Philistines will kill David. In verse 17, we read that Saul is, has a daughter and he's trying to get David to become his son-in-law, but he's doing it so that uh, David will fight the Philistines for him. And he says, I want you to fight the battle of the Lord. Uh, I'm not going to raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Now, I want you to notice here, Saul still wants David dead. And he realizes, I can't do this. For, for whatever reason, I'm not being able to kill this guy, but I want him dead. And notice again how pious Saul's language is. David, all I want you to do is fight the Lord's battles. And I want you to fight him because I want you dead, David. I hope the enemies of God and his people will slay you, David. Fight the Lord's battles. Sometimes you need to be very aware and wary of people who sound very religious because we, we can speak the right words and our hearts can be far away. I've told you all before, I, I, I'm very grateful that the church, you know, let me do all the work I did in seminary and all the study I did. But, man, I remember when I, I sat in there one time, we were starting a class on the Gospels, and Dr. Mawinney came in, and he said, okay, everybody back from break. So, well, welcome back to the most dangerous place in the world. I'm going to teach you the Word of God for the next 90 minutes, and you will either be drawn closer to God or you will be hardened and pushed farther away because you cannot be unaffected by the Word of God. So open up to Matthew or whatever. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what kind of an intro is that to a class? The answer is it's a good intro because it's true. And Saul's heart, while he's using pious language, is getting further and further from God. And so he wants the Philistines to kill him. Now, once again, consider how there's no reason in this. Saul can't defeat the Philistines. The only guy that's been able to lead them to victory is David, but he would rather have David dead even if it means the Philistines are going to gain the upper hand, even if it will bring problem to him and his house and the nation, better to have David dead. He, he's sawing off the limb on which he sits, but that's what sin will do to us. It eclipses reason. And when one plays the game of thrones, reason is lost, madness ensues, and will even help our enemies rather than submit to God's will. Anything but the will of God. It doesn't matter how crazy it is. Sideline, I won't normally bring this up, but I watched a video last week where, where a man went to a college campus. This was crazy. He's about a five foot five white guy. And he went up to people and he said, what would you say if I told you I was a woman? And they said, okay. And he did it to a whole bunch of students. And they all said, okay. And he said, what would you do if I told you I was a Chinese woman? I mean, this guy's whiter than I am. And they said, okay. And he said, what would you do if I told you I'm a six-foot-five Chinese woman? Many of them still said, okay. A few of them said, well, no, you're not six-foot-five. He said, how do you know I'm not six-foot-five? They said, well, we could measure you. He said, but you can't look at me and tell that I'm not Chinese and I'm not a woman. Well, no, I couldn't say that. 
This is insanity of the highest sort on a college campus. But when our heart gets set against the will of God, when we play the game of thrones and I want to be on the throne, I can be amazed at the craziness that will come out of my mouth and the things I will support and do. Because anything but God taking me off the throne, anything but me having to go back and submit. And that's exactly where Saul is. And so Saul then uses his own daughter to try and get David killed. Because the Philistines thing didn't work. David just kept getting more victories. Saul tries to kill David. People love him more. Saul sends him out to fight the Philistines. The people love him more. So now Saul says, how about if I use my own daughter? Because his second daughter, Michal, is in love with David. And so Saul says in verse 21, I'll give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And he sets up a plan and says, uh, the king doesn't want anything other than you to go out and get some Philistine uh, foreskins. You, know, you go out and knock some Philistines down and circumcise them and bring it back. And his reason is, at the end of verse 25, his plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Can I tell you, this is, this is good stuff for the heart of a father towards his daughter right here. Now, when Seamus started courting my daughter, I thought the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but who is this guy? coming after my princess. How, how evil and wicked do you have to be to look at your daughter loving a man and your only thought is, I could use her to be a snare. I could get her with this guy and get him killed. Where's the love for his daughter? There's no reason. Jealousy has filled the heart. He's in the game of thrones, and it does not matter who is a casualty, even if it's his own daughter. If it will let him win the game of thrones, it's a small price to pay. Saul, then, that doesn't work either, because David says, okie doke. Goes out, kills 100 Philistines, brings the price back, says, there you go, Saul. And Saul's like, man, this is not working. So he finally just gives up, and he orders Jonathan and the attendants to kill him. In chapter 19, verse 1, Saul tells Jonathan and the attendants to kill him. He's actively actually asking others. He's not hoping it'll be the enemies of God's people. He's not just hoping that his daughter can be kind of an accessory. He's actually asking, now, I want you to go over there and grab the guy and kill him. Because see, it just keeps spreading. That's what sin does. It never stays contained. And so Saul is actively asking other people to kill David, and it shows the escalating nature of the sin that grips Saul's heart. He's going to directly involve other people in his sin and actually in their own destruction because David is God's anointed to deliver them from their enemies. Now, when Jonathan protests it, we won't put all the verses up, but he protests it, Saul then takes an oath in the name of Yahweh and says, as the Lord lives, I will not lay a hand on David. As Yahweh lives, and I believe he means it in that moment. And David comes back, and Saul's sitting there while David's playing, and Saul's prophesying, and it all starts rolling over his mind again, and guess what Saul does again? All of a sudden, the spear is flying, trying to pin David to the wall again, after he has again taken an oath in the name of the Lord. 
And may you fight the Lord's battles, David. May God be with you, David, while I'm trying to kill you. All the pious language means nothing. Saul then sends men to David's house to drag him out of bed with his daughter and to have him killed while his daughter is there. Once again, how cold and callous do you have to be? Now what this means, what it's showing us is because Saul is so full of jealousy and he is so busy playing the game of thrones, Saul, the anointed king, now looks more like a mafia boss than the leader of God's people. He's got more in common with the Godfather or Tony Soprano than he does with Moses or Samuel or a ruler of God's people. How far has this man fallen? But it's because of the jealousy that eats away at his heart. And all of this, notice, is turned on David. Because the real focus today is not even so much what Saul's doing, but what it, how it affects David. David is under the favor of God, and this is what he's living through. A murderous, mad king trying to kill him because all he's done is deliver that very king. Save that very king. So one can be under the blessing of God and be under the wrath of human beings because of the very fact you're under the blessing of God. But that leads to the final point, which is that David is also under the sovereign protection of God. Because notice throughout all of this, God sovereignly protects David. Saul throws spears at David three times, and every time David eludes the spears. And it's not because Saul's not a good warrior, he is. God is sovereignly protecting David. He gives David success in protection in battle with the Philistines. He's constantly going out to battle where he could be killed and where he could die, but David is always protected in every instance. He gives, God, he gives David faithful friends in Jonathan and Michal who keep protecting David, and we're going to see throughout the story, they are there at the most critical moments for David and watching over and uh, protecting him. He gives David favor in the eyes of the people so that Saul is even afraid to directly go out and just kill David for a period of time. God is sovereignly protecting his anointed one from every scheme and attack of those who would wish his own death. Now, as I'm always trying to do to help you read the scripture, does this remind you of another anointed of God, a son of David, who the enemies rage against, but they cannot take him before his appointed time? How many times do we read in the Gospels this exact same thing? Because remember, the point of this story is not David. The point of the story is the greater son of David that is going to come. Because, friends, I got news for you. David's doing really well right now. We're going to see in a couple of weeks where David's not doing so well. And in fact, we're going to see in a, in a month or so down the line where if God didn't intervene, David was going to fight with the Philistines to kill God's people. That's how bad it gets for David, okay? The hero always, here's the thing, there's only one hero in this movie, Jesus. We don't have another hero. Everybody else is a clown, all of them. Just read them honestly, and you're going to say, well, this, this guy's a mess, even David. And so the hero is Jesus. And David here is being a picture of that because everyone raged against God's anointed Jesus and wanted him dead. And Jesus kept, remember, walking out through the midst because he said, it's not my time. 
You won't do anything. Remember, he even sends a message to the king. and says, you tell that fox, I'm going to be a couple of days, and then I'm coming to Jerusalem, and then your time will come. Your time will come where you will be allowed to have me, but until then, I am protected. David has the same thing. God even protects David and Samuel from Saul's attacks. In chapter 19, down around verse 19, we read where Saul hears that David is down at Ramah with Samuel. And so he sends some men to capture him. But when they see the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there, the Spirit of God comes upon the assassins, and they sit down and they start prophesying and worshiping along with them. Now, you would think when word filters back to Saul, what would be the rational response at this point? I've tried to kill David. I tried to have the Philistines kill David. I tried to use my daughter as a snare. I sent people down to do it. And now I've actually sent assassins out to get him. And all that happened was the Holy Spirit came upon them and they ended up worshiping with David rather than trying to kill him. Obviously, I need to stop this. That's what Saul's going to do, right? No, he's going to recruit a second group of assassins who go down and they encounter Saul and the prophets. And what happens? Same thing, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they start to prophesy, they sit down and they worship him. Well, surely Saul's going to figure it out from this, right? No, there's going to be a third group sent down there to try and do the same thing, and the same thing happens again. I mean, you can't be this stupid. Three times it's happened, you know, get off the throne, stop playing the game of thrones. God is obviously revealing his sovereign will. It is that David is the anointed. It's time for you to step down Saul. But what does Saul do? He straps on his sword and he heads down himself. And then notice in an amazing verse, in verse 21, um, that uh, it's actually, excuse me, now in verse 23 and 24. The Spirit of God came even upon him, Saul, who the Spirit has left Saul, but now he comes back upon Saul as he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth, and then he stripped off his robes and prophesied in Samuel's presence. See, here's what Saul should have done all the way back in chapter 15. He should have stripped off his robes and sat down and gave them over to David. But he doesn't do that. He's still trying to kill David, but notice God is sovereignly protecting David. And even when Saul comes in all of his murderous rage and wrath, he ends up symbolically doing what Yahweh is going to do ultimately, which is take his robes off and sit in the presence of the new anointed king. And so, Despite the hatred of Saul and others, David is safe and secure because God is sovereign over all things. David will not die. He will not be harmed before his time, period. There is no wrestling, okay? Now, we're going to move into applying the word, and I want us to focus on that. Let me say as we move in, Obviously, there's a lot of things you could sit here and wrestle and say, wow, do I hear things from Saul echoing in my own life? And if you do, I want to encourage you to wrestle through that. But we've studied this text before from Saul's perspective. Today, we're looking at the life of David. So I'm not really in applying the word going to go through jealousy and rage and wrath and all of that. If the Lord is speaking to you, I want to encourage you to, to wrestle through that. But we have another thing that we need to see, and these are so important for us because I believe they are misunderstood by the American church. It's two questions, and then we come to the Lord's table. Number one, do I understand divine blessing 
and human hatred. I almost named this teaching Divine Blessing and Human Hatred because it's what runs through this whole section. David is under the blessing of God. You see it all through these chapters. Everywhere he turns, he's under the blessing of God. He was being faithful to God and his call. David's doing very well at this point in the story. He is being faithful. But it's precisely because of the blessing of God and precisely because of his faithfulness to God that Saul is jealous and angry and full of hate towards David. They're not unrelated. They are, they are hand and glove coupled together. Do I understand that? Do we understand as believers to be faithful to God, to be faithful to God's call, to walk in the blessing of God is to experience hostility from a world that hates God. They simply go together. Now, I say this is important for us because in much of the world they understand this. When we sat in Egypt with the 20 families of the 21, because the one was Ghanaian, but when we were there with the families who had been martyred by ISIS on the beach, this did not bring crisis into their life in the sense that who knew that we could be Christians and suffer for that? They always knew that. They just said this is another sign of what we've already known. To follow Christ is to be persecuted. The two go together. But the American church does not believe that. We believe things go better with Jesus. We believe Come to Jesus and get your best life now. And if you don't believe that, look and see how there was a title, Your Best Life Now, was the best-selling Christian book. Being bought, lopped up by Christians as to how you can get your best life now. Tell that to David. You know what David's thinking as he's dodging spears? I was a lot better off when I was just shepherding sheep. Nobody was trying to kill me. I mean, I had lions and bears, but that was okay. I've now got a whack job king trying to kill me every time I turn around. Divine blessing and human hatred often go hand in hand. Do I understand that? Or am I surprised when faithfulness to God brings ridicule, slander, and conflict with the world? See, one of the things that you know, I began by talking about the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. One of the things that buoyed up Dr. King and Dr. Perkins and many of the other leaders was they already understood this. To be faithful to God oftentimes brought conflict with the world. And they understood that to stand there and say that all human beings are created in the image of God and therefore that has implications in how we live and how we ought to structure our society, they understood that was not going to be received well by everyone. Do we understand that? Do we recognize that? The funny thing today is we're being pressured by our culture on all kinds of fronts to condone sin. We are being pressured by our culture to, to say the way God has made you is not the way that they're actually made and that we can engage in sin that the scripture specifically tells us you will not inherit the kingdom of God and we're told to embrace it. And then we act shocked when we refuse to embrace it, and the world despises us. Well, let me go ahead and prophesy for you. I'm not a prophet, but I'll tell you this. It's going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. 
we are going to be more and more and more out of step with our culture. And there's only one way to come under the favor of the culture, and that's to come out from under the favor of God. Not a place you want to be. Better to have a mad king hurling spears at you and be under the blessing of God. It's just simply better. And very, very often in the history of the church, the two have gone together. To be under the favor of God is to have a mad king trying to kill you. Do we understand that? Second question, am I trusting in the sovereignty of God? Because that's, that's a rough point I just made. If you really understand that, that does not say, I'm just really looking forward to the future. But here's what undergirds that. God is sovereign. He is. There's no divine arm wrestling match going on. Because if the devil and all of his demons got together and tried to arm wrestle with God, it would be the shortest arm wrestling match in all of history. There is no comparison of power. All authority, all power resides in the hands of the triune God. Anyone who exercises authority and power only does it under the permissive will of God. Period. And the American church is lost. We are so big because we are so much about democracy and we get to vote. Can I tell you, we don't live in a democracy. We, we live under a God who rules and reigns. And everything that's in conflict with that is Game of Thrones. And everything in conflict with that is going to stand before him on the final day and give answer to it. God is sovereign. David is safe in the hall of a mad king because God is sovereign. Now, does that mean that God's servants are never harmed? I visited 20 Egyptian families who had lost their sons because they sang hymns on a beach before madmen slit their throat. But they did that under the sovereignty of God. If God had chosen to deliver them, he could have delivered them. In his own purpose and time, he does things. Look, I, I struggle with this. I got questions at times as to why God exercises his sovereignty the way he does. And so it would be really hard, except for there's one thing that's much harder, to believe that somehow God is trying to do things and he can't quite do it because he's getting to be kind of weak and old. But he's not. He is fully sovereign. Do I believe that? Do I believe to quote the greater son of David, that not a hair of my head can perish apart from the will of my father. Do I believe that two sparrows are sold for a penny in the marketplace? They're of no consequence at all, but not one of them can fall to the ground apart from the will of the father. Those are, those are some pretty strong words from Jesus. Do I believe that? Because if that undergirds me, then I can live my life with abandon. And let me tell you just for a second on the other side, see, Saul doesn't believe that. And that's why he's filled with jealous, jealousy and anger. Because he's not happy with the lot he's being assigned by Yahweh. He doesn't believe Yahweh ought to have the right to hand the kingdom over to someone else. 
And so if jealousy and anger ever rises in my heart regarding God's blessing on someone else, there's a sure sign I'm not really understanding the sovereignty of God. A sure sign. Because God ought to be doing it different. Now, I know none of y'all have probably ever given advice to God. It's a thing I found myself doing regularly. Thankfully, for you and for the rest of the world, he doesn't take my advice. He's pretty stuck on he's God and I need to do what I'm being told to do. But man, we, we want to do that. And so the last question on sovereignty, and we'll come to the Lord's table. Do I cry out to God in my distress? See, that's what's going on in David's heart right now. You can read Psalms that are written during this time. Okay, you can find them in the, in the superscripts to the Psalms. And what David does during this time is he cries out to God in lament. He's crying out to God in his distress. What I tend to want to do is connive, complain, gather a committee, form a petition, anything except for just cry out to God. And you know what that's a sign of? It's a sign I don't trust in God's sovereignty. I'm going to work this out on my own. So I'm working out a plan. I have the committee to stop spear-chunking kings. Right? But see, do you notice David knows where is he supposed to be according to Yahweh's will in the hall of the mad king. One might say, David, how many times are you going to let this guy throw a spear at you? But I want you to notice David's doing well. We're going to see when he leaves the hall of the mad king, he's going to leave because he says, one of these days God's sovereignty is not going to hold and Saul's going to get me. And so I got to flee. And at that moment, David is not going to be doing well. Do I really, really deeply trust in the sovereign God? Now we're going to come to the Lord's table. As we come down here to the table of the king, the issue I want us to mainly wrestle with today is exactly that issue. And I'm going to read an unusual verse for coming to the Lord's table, but I think it summarizes what we're talking about. It's 1 Peter 5, 6 to 10. In this text we read, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Notice the submission. I'm not playing the Game of Thrones. I'm off. I, I'm under your mighty hand, and you'll deliver me in your time. And whatever anxiety arises in my heart, I cast it on you, because I know not only are you sovereign, you are good, and you care for me. Here's the other option we have, starting in verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. See, Peter tells him, look, what you need to do is submit to God. And you need to cast all your anxiety on him. 
because your only other option is to be out there with the lion. And he doesn't care for you. He wants to destroy you. So resist him, submit to God, and know that the God of all grace at his right time will restore you, will lift you up. So this morning as we come to the table, I want to encourage us. There there may be other sins, and if you have those, confess those to the Lord. But the, the main thing I want us to ask this morning and seriously ask, don't say, well, I'm a Christian, I don't have this. Am I playing the Game of Thrones? Am I wrestling the sovereignty of God? Am I trying to do things the way I want it done rather than the way God wants it done? Am I submitting to him and his will even when it's tough? Even when God's will places you in situations where you're saying, Lord, have you noticed there are spear holes all around my head in the wall? It seems like you're not watching over me. We trust him. Wrestle with that. That is a very hard question. But I want us to wrestle with it because I want you to know this. God's not a masochist. He loves you. His plans for you are better than your plans for yourself. He watches over and keeps you, and he will restore you. And whatever pain we go through will always work to our good now and in eternity. Always. God works all things for his glory and our good. I want to encourage you, wrestle and look to him in that. If you're here and you're not a member of our church, you are welcome at this table. It is not our table. This is the table of the king. So you are welcome to participate with us if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means briefly that you recognize you have nothing to offer God. There's only one hero, and it is Jesus. He is righteous. And all I brought to my salvation was my sin, my depraved will, my attempts to run from God with everything I had in me. That's what I brought to my salvation. But thanks be to God, he reached down and plucked me up from the dead and has regenerated me and made me his child. If you believe that, then come to the table and eat. And all of us, let's confess our sin and receive grace. What I receive from the Lord, I pass on also to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, as we come to the table this morning, we recognize that even when your sovereignty is working in a way that we are living in the hall of a mad king. 
and life seems to be crazy around us. And when your sovereignty is being exercised in such a way that your blessing means the hatred of others around us, Father, we trust you. And we trust you because of what we celebrate at this table. You did not just speak that you loved us. Your son was broken. He was crushed that we might be put together, made whole, saved. And so, Father, because you have loved us with a fierce, undying, unquenchable love, we trust you. In our sin, we come to you confessing and receiving grace and forgiveness. We ask, Father, you'd come by your Holy Spirit, meet us in the sacrament at your table. In Jesus' name, amen. The ushers are going to come forward, and as they hand the elements out, I again want to remind you to wrestle through that question. Where do I stand with the sovereignty of God? Where do I stand in submitting to God's plan and will in my life? And then we're going to take the elements together in a couple moments. Fathers, we come this morning to the table of the King. We come confessing our own sin. And Father, we come admitting how hard it is for us to submit. Lord, we fear to submit because we fear that those to whom we give full authority would not do things for our good. But Lord, we hold this bread this morning, the symbol of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And Father, in that body you have proven to us once and for all the depth of your love and your faithfulness towards us. For we who were sinners, we who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. We who in league with our father Adam had rebelled against your authority we who had tried to set up our own rule, we were forgiven because Christ was sacrificed in our place. And Lord, because as we reflect on that great love that he would die that we might live, Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit as we partake of this sacrament, you would cleanse us not only from the penalty of that sin, but from its power. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ was broken, that we might be healed. Thanks be to God for the body of Christ. Take and eat. And Father, we hold in our hands, this cup, the cup of salvation, the cup of thanksgiving, the cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ that has sealed the new covenant. And Father, we are ever grateful that in that covenant, you have not only given us forgiveness of sins, but you have given us a new heart. 
and you have given us your Holy Spirit. You have written the law of God upon our hearts, and you are empowering us to do that which we were never able to do under the old covenant because it was always weakened by our sinful nature. And so, Lord, we ask that the blood of Christ would cleanse us from our guilt, from the penalty of sin, and also, O Lord, from its power. Father, I confess that far too often I have tried to pull you from the throne, and I have built my own throne, a throne of lust, a throne of greed, a throne of pride and envy, a throne that has emblazoned my will, not thine be done. But, O Lord, this morning we cast ourselves before you. O Lord, this morning we ask that fresh and new the blood of Christ would purify us from all sin, as it says in your word, and that we would be released so that we might walk in the light. Father, we climb off the throne. We chisel away the words that were there, and we say, your will be done, O God. We ask, Holy Spirit, that this week you would form and fashion us to be obedient servants. And we ask this, Lord, because we know it is good and right, and we ask it because we know it's what is best for us. So like Jesus, David's greater son, who came and said, it's written about me in the book, I have come to do your will, O God. Holy Spirit, would you etch that upon our hearts because of the glorious new covenant sealed by the blood of Christ. Thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus that has done this for us. Take and drink. Lord, I pray for us, as I know many of us have been walking through the valley of the shadow. And in that valley, it is easy to question your sovereignty sometimes. In that valley, it is easy to hear the voice of the wolf and hard to hear the voice of the shepherd. Father, I pray for every one of us that this week, again, we would hear you. Father, this week, if we see spears coming our way, if it seems that your favor is producing conflict and hatred and difficulty towards us, Father, I pray your gentle Holy Spirit would speak to us and that we would be, we would be reminded of your sovereignty, of your goodness, of your steadfast love to us as your children. Father, I pray you would sustain us by your good Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray in that moment when we are tempted to snatch the reins of sovereignty ourselves, Father, I pray that we remember that you know all things and are far wiser than we. You control all things and can work all things out according to the counsel of your will, and we cannot. And that, Father, you are working all things for your glory and our good. 
and that our prayer will be, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, O God. Father, work that in us by your Holy Spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to conclude with a word of benediction. As I prayed about that this week, the the only one that could really come to mind is Genesis chapter 12, God's blessing on Abraham, even in the midst of Abraham's difficulties and enemies. So I encourage you to receive the blessing of God. God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And so all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Go in the blessing of Jesus Christ to be a blessing. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.